This week we have another double parsha. This is the third of Leviticus, so we're going to end Leviticus with the ninth and tenth sections today. The next week we'll begin the book of Numbers. Uh, this week's parshas is Behar and Bechukosai. Behar means on the mountain or in the mountain, and Bechukosai means my laws or my statutes. And the first parsha, Behar, begins with a very puzzling introduction. Hashem spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, and he gives him the whole, the whole section. The whole section that begins with that introduction. And the question that everyone wants to understand is why is there this preamble that this mitzvah was given at Sinai? We know the Jewish people haven't left Sinai yet. They got to Sinai halfway through Exodus. They were there for the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, they had some mishaps along the way. But they've been there, but they haven't moved yet. And so they've been at Sinai for the whole duration. Uh, the book of Leviticus could have started, God spoke to Moshe at Sinai. And here, right in the middle, it throws in that this mitzvah, or this section was given at Sinai. The question is, why, why now? So hold off on that for a second, but the verse tells us that Moshe is told to tell the Jewish people about a certain mitzvah, what happens when they get to the land of Israel. When they get to the land of Israel, and the land shall take a Shabbos, a sabbatical, one-seventh off. For six years, you plant, and you sow, and you reap, and you prune, and you harvest your orchards, and your vineyards, and your fields, everything. However, in the seventh year, it's Shemitah, it's like Shabbos. You don't plant, you don't prune, you don't reap. Uh, you don't harvest, it's a year off. Land takes a year off. And what happens to the produce that's produced on its own? Well, that everyone could take. You could take it, but your neighbor could walk in to your farm and pick your apples and pick your esserodes, etc. Moreover, there's a prohibition on your... Uh, you can't designate your land for your own animals or your own crops. It's not yours, it's... It belongs to everyone. Everyone wants to come in and to take it. Fine. So Rashi, going back to the first verse, Rashi tells us, he asks the question, why is the law of Shemitah, the law of the sabbatical year, why is it specifically linked to Sinai? All the mitzvahs were given to us at Sinai. And therefore, why specifically point to this mitzvah as it giving being given to us at Sinai? So Rashi says, there's a lesson here. Just like the mitzvah of Shemitah was given with its general principles and its minutia and its details, all the specific details of a mitzvah, of a mitzvah were given at Sinai, so too all the other mitzvahs were given, not just the general principles, but also the minutia and the details at Sinai. That's what Rashi says. Uh, but the question still persists. If it was imperative for us to be told that at Sinai, the Jewish people got not just generalities, general principles of mitzvahs, but also details. Why Shemitah? The lesson had to be taught, sure. The lesson had to be taught that mitzvahs were given to us with details. Why was Shemitah chosen to be the mitzvah that represents mitzvahs in general? I think there's a lesson. I think, that, I think we could say that Shemitah is emblematic of all the mitzvahs uh, in totality. Think about this. Societies that are entirely reliant on agriculture. 
Like if you don't produce food, you don't have anything to eat, if you don't have anything to eat, you, you die. And obviously people are very territorial over their land, over their produce, over their crops. Because they know that it's the difference between living and dying. And the Mitzvah tells us, you got the land of Israel, different rules. The land takes a year off. Well, that's not a bad idea because the land needs to refresh itself. It's a good idea for the land to take a year off anyhow. But this is not just for the benefit of the land. Everyone takes a year off in the same year. So the entire society, the entire nation is reliant entirely on agriculture. Everyone's off for a year. How are we going to live? How are we going to survive? Uh, that's a very good question. And we're told later on in the partnership, rely on God. Stop relying on yourself. Rely on God. Perhaps we can argue that this mitzvah is really emblematic of all the mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs are trying to bring us to the point where we actually believe in God to the degree when he says, I'll feed you, don't worry about it. We trust him. We listen to him. We hearken and we heed what he says and we observe the mitzvah. Maybe this is the objective. If you look at the culmination of all the mitzvahs together, what do you have? You have Shemitah. And therefore, if we're looking for one mitzvah to stand in, to represent all the mitzvahs in general, there's no greater mitzvah than Shemitah to represent all mitzvahs and teach us important lessons. And I want to I want to point out that there's another interesting insight regarding Shemitah and the farmer in general. We're told in the Talmud that the farmer is the epitome of faith. A farmer plants and has faith. And the obvious question is, why are we going to rabbis and scholars and spiritual people to learn lessons about faith? We should go to the farmer. And that's a, that's a decent question, because that's what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, well, every farmer who plants has faith. Well, is it possible for someone to be a farmer and not have faith? Obviously, of course. So what does it mean? So I think that in, in, the, in agriculture in general, there is a lesson of what faith is. Emuna is when someone behaves in a way of total reliance on a phenomena that they cannot explain. No one knows, and this is true even today scientifically, how agriculture works. How is it that you take a, an edible seed and you place it in an edible ground and you pour some water and you just wait a little bit and voila, you have a fruit-bearing tree that emerges. No one knows how that works. It's magic. Yet the entire world is reliant upon this miracle. And when the, plant, when the farmer plants, he doesn't for a second consider that this is not going to yield fruit. He knows for sure. Well, how do you know for sure? You have faith. So when you look at the farmer and you see how he behaves, that is a model for how we ought to behave with regards to our faith and our amuna in Hashem. It should be like a given that this is true, this exists, even though we can't explain it necessarily, we can't understand it. It's a miracle. It's beyond the wavelength of our reality, but we have to start behaving in a way that assumes that this is true and fixed. So indeed, 
the idea of farmer in general, and specifically with regards to Shemitah, is something which is really uh, critical towards the general principle of what we are striving to achieve. And therefore, it's no shock that the Torah spends a lot of time talking about the farmer and how he ought to behave, and the lessons for us, even as non-farmers, uh, are still very powerful. So that's the Shemitah. Shemitah year, everyone uh, everyone stops working for, for a year. What do you do when you stop working for a year? You study Torah, you spend time with the kids, you try to do other mitzvos, maybe you get a side gig, but uh, you, don't, you don't plant, that's for sure. And uh, this mitzvah is actually still in effect today in Israel. You're a farmer in Israel. In 2008, it was a Shemitah year. 2015, it was a Shemitah year. 2022, is going to be a Shemitah year. Every seven years. Uh, and in Israel, all the farmers shut their doors. Take a year off. It's, it's still in effect today, but it, and it's only for farmers. It's not by law, but if you're a farmer, where are you going to sell your produce to? Where are you going to sell your produce to? The problem is, is that, let's say a farmer says, I'm not going to... Well, the whole parasha is really oriented about what happens if a farmer refuses to behave in this way. So it doesn't end up so well for him. Uh, but what happens if a farmer doesn't observe? Uh, actually, the, and he works the field. Halacha is, is that that food that it yields is not kosher. So that's the only time, really, only in Israel is it possible for vegetables to not be kosher. So if you are a farmer, a renegade farmer, who doesn't want to keep Shemitah in Israel, you have a hard time selling it to local food producers, manufacturers. So frequently what you'll see is this huge uptick in Kroger and Costco uh, in 2015, 2022. Suddenly there's all this produce from Israel. And that's a big red flag. Normally we like to support Israel, sure, but we also like to eat kosher. So if you see f- produce from Israel on a Shemitah year, or even the year after Shemitah year, when the leftover uh, crops, it's uh, uh, very likely that that's actually not kosher. This halacha only applies in Israel, and in the part of Israel that's actually halachically Israel, which does not, which is not the same as what yeah. is part of the state of Israel. The modern state of Israel is wherever the modern state of Israel, wherever the borders are. It seems likely, and there's a whole debate. There's all we actually have someone in Houston here as an expert on on the boundaries of one of Israel. It's kind of an obscure topic. But where exactly does the biblical, or the halachic state of Israel, land of Israel, where's the cutoff point? So there's a huge question about that. Uh, because everyone seems to agree that it doesn't go as far south or as far north as the modern state of Israel. It goes further east. But where south and where north is the cutoff point? So like the farms that are in the Negev, South, are they allowed to work on Shemitah? Because they're, yeah, they're technically the state of Israel, but they're not in the halachic Israel, and therefore be fine. So it's a whole huge debate where that is the cutoff point. There's an interesting Rashi here that really, that really uh, captures this in verse 6. It will be a Shemitah, a Shabbos for the land. Rashi says, what's the lesson here? Don't act as if you're the owner. Ella, call you Shavamba. You're not the owner. You know who's the owner? God's the owner. And this is a whole year of preparing and, and thinking and living 
with the recognition that you're not the owner, God's the owner. If God's the owner, then he tells you how to behave. Very powerful. And that's really the le- the lesson, the theme of the whole parsha, I would say. Now, that is every seven years, but there's another seven-year cycle of seven years known as the Yovel, which we learn, again, is this, this week's parsha. You have the cycle of seven sabbatical years, so seven times seven, 49 years, and the 50th year, on Yom Kippur, we there's a shofar blown throughout the land. It's the it's the Yovel year, the Jubilee year, and there's freedom throughout the land and all the inhabitants. All the ancestral lands get returned to the original owners. So when they got into the land of Israel and they divided it up the land, every family was given a certain section of land. And that was their land forever. What if they needed to sell it? They could sell it, but it goes back to the original family on Yovel. So every sale is a maximum of a 50-year lease, really. So that's the first thing that happens on Shemitah. And the next thing is, is that all, sla- all Jewish slaves get freed on the Yovel, on the, uh, uh, on the 50th year. Um, now, today, this is not observed because there's a, dif- there's a difference between Shemitah and Yovel. We know when the Shemitah is. We don't know when the Yovel is. And therefore, the Yovel is actually not practiced now. Now, in fact, the Rambam, if I recall, when he discusses rebuilding the temple and the coming of the Mashiach, one of the examples of the things that he reinstitution is, I believe, he brings the Shemitah and Yovel. He talks about Yovel being reinstituted. So, um, very interesting idea is that, uh, and, and this, I think, again, dovetails with the previous idea is that when you own a piece of land, it's not yours. To sell it. I mean, normally, when you own stuff, you could sell it. But if God really owns the land of Israel, it's really God's land. He's He's allowing you to. This is your ancestral home that He gave you, but it's not yours to the degree that you can go ahead and sell it permanently. You could sell it, sure, if you need the money, but that's really a lease. That's really, you're really lending it or releasing it out for a maximum of fifty years. Uh, if there's three years left to the over, you're selling it for three years. But you're essentially not selling the land, you're just selling the produce, the crops, because the land itself is still technically owned. Uh, it's all owned by God, but it's it's in the possession of the original family, and it's always going to refresh back to that um, to that status every Yovel. Now, the Yovel year is actually another year where work cannot be done on the field. So, year 49, year 50 are a double year of no work. And the verse will later address, well, what are you going to eat? You have two years off, no one works. How are you not going to starve to death? That's a good question. So now what's interesting here, in verse 14, it describes someone selling something. So you have another Jew who's selling some of his property, uh, uh, is uh, not real property, but uh, personal property, movable property, Halacha is you can't cheat your fellow. So this is a general rule. This seems kind of out of place. If some, if you're doing business with someone else, don't cheat them. And the question is, why is this put in right over here? It seems to be out of place. We're talking about Shemitah and Yovel. And we're going to go back to the Shemitah and Yovel in a single verse. But right in the middle, interspersed and everything, is not to cheat. Uh, and, the, and Rashi tells us that if someone does not observe the law of Shemitah, 
they think that they're going to become very rich because while everyone's off, I'm going to be the one who has all the produce. I'm about to sell, make a lot of money. But the truth is, is that it, they'll have the opposite effect. They're going to become poor and have to start selling off their stuff. First thing they're going to need to sell is their movable, their their personal property, and it's going to it's going to it's going to spiral from there, and they have to sell the rest of their stuff as well. And verse fifteen goes back to what happens when someone sells their ancestral homeland. They actually don't they don't sell the actual land; they sell the crop years. And therefore, the more years there are till Shemitah, the greater the price is. And the fewer years there are till Shemitah, then the cheaper it is. Because you're not selling the actual land, you're selling the crops. Verse 17 goes back and tells us an important law, not to cheat your fellow again. It's almost the same exact verse. And the question is, why does it say the same verse, don't cheat, don't cheat? And Rashi explains, based upon the Talmud, that the first cheating is referring to business. And the second is referring to uh, words. You can't aggrieve your fellow with words. What does that mean? Don't embarrass your friend. Don't belittle your friend. But also, don't give him bad advice. Sometimes someone comes to you for advice, and you realize that it's possible for you to exploit him. Give him bad advice. It'll actually be beneficial for you. Financial advisor comes and he tells you, well, you know, buy this or buy that. And he has personal interest and he's giving advice based upon what's better for him, not what's better for the recipient of that advice. Now, the verse ends here, verse 17 ends, you should be fearful from God because I am the I am Hashem, your God. And the question is, what's the, what's the juxtaposition of the requirement not to cheat, not to give bad advice uh, to the instruction to be fearful of Hashem? So Rashi tells us that some of these things are only between man and God. Someone gives advice, there's no way for someone else to know uh, that they're actually cheating their fellow. And therefore, who knows? God knows. And therefore, in matters that are between you and God, you should realize, you should fear, be fearful of Hashem because he, he knows the things that are in your heart. And if in your heart you have some devious intent when you give advice, he knows, and he's aware, and he is keeping store. And I think, you know, broadly speaking, fear of God is one of the major principles, one of the objectives of Torah. And for someone to have a certain seriousness in their relationship with God, and they behave differently based upon the existence of God. And here we're told, how is that manifest? It's not necessarily how someone behaves when other people can judge them. It's how someone behaves When no one sees what they're doing and no one sees how they're behaving, it's only God saying, if you behave differently as a result of that, then indeed you you are acting in fear of God. Verse 18 tells us, uh, again, to perform the mitzvot and the statutes and you'll live in the land securely. Here we're being told people who don't observe the law of Shemitah actually cause the Jewish people to be exiled from their land. Now, verse 20, very powerful. Perhaps you may say, What will we eat on the seventh year? Behold, we won't plant, we won't gather our fruit. And of course, this is compounded on the 49th year, because on the 49th year, it's actually a double year of, of no work 
And if there's two years of no work, what are you going to eat is a very decent question. So verse 21 tells us, I will command my blessing on you on the sixth year. And the sixth year will be such a bumper crop that it will produce the produce for three years. So six, seven, and eight. It's all predicated on the fact that the people in Israel are living with God. Amazing idea here that we're told uh, that we just take a year off. Everyone takes a year off. None of us are going to die. In fact, we're going we're gonna to be great. We're going to have a year off, spend with our kids, and not lose out uh, at all. Um, I, I always use this as an example, kind of a psychological proof of Torah. You think about it. Assuming, well, we know the Torah was written by God. We know that. But let's assume someone wants to say, well, no, it was written by men. You have to ask yourself the question, would a man write this law? A man who cannot control the bumper crops, who's just a, a, a mortal, why would he put this in? Obviously, someone intends, whoever wrote this, if it was a man, intended that people should observe it and maintain it and continue on. He's, if someone who, if a human wrote this, without God telling him to write this, then they're either creating a world where, or a religion where no one's going to observe the laws, which is clearly not the, not the intention of the author, or they will observe the laws and die. So obviously, it's not smart for a human to write this. But if you're God, and you have control over everything, and you could say, I, I could promise a bumper crop on year six, then that's falsifiable. You t- Trust me. Try, try me out. And you know what? The Jewish nation is still here. And we've spent 3,000 years fastidiously observing the Torah, and we're still here. And every other nation that's been around since then, the mighty empires, they're all gone, and we're still here. If someone wants to question what we know is true, if someone wants to question that, you have to point to one of, this is an example of a verse you point to and say, okay, were the people, according to you, what you think, people who wrote the Torah, were they smart or were they dumb? Well, obviously they were smart. I think everyone would agree that the author of the, of the Torah, even if it was a human, was very intelligent. Explain me how an intelligent human writes this. There's no way to do that. Pretty interesting. Uh, okay, so let's continue here. Now, the verse verse 25 talks about another Jew who things are bad for them and they have to start selling off their property. This is a continuation of the trend that Rashi tells us. First, someone ought to sell the movable property. If they continue to not observe the Shemitah, they'll have to sell their actual ancestral homeland. And the halacha is that when someone sells their ancestral homeland, they are allowed and encouraged to buy it back. If I buy someone else's ancestral homeland, not only do I have to return it to him in the Shemitah year, but I actually, if the person comes up with the funds, I am obligated to allow them to buy it back. At the original price. So, because I didn't buy the actual land, I bought just the crop years, you do the math. If it's 50 crop, or, or let's say it's 25 crop years, figure out how much I paid per crop year, how many crop years I used, and then the balance is what he would need to pay to get it back. And the verse continues what if a person sells his home, not a Shemitah, not an ancestral home, just a regular home, uh, and then he's also allowed to buy it back? But this does not go back in Shemitah. So he has a certain amount of time to buy it back. Then uh, after that time, it's sold forever. So this is if you sell your house uh, in Israel, but that's not part of your ancestral homeland, 
then you are allowed to buy it back up to a year. You have a year to buy it back. It's it's like the grace period. It's the option period uh, for the seller. Once it the option period passes, uh, that would be for the original price. Uh, but once the option period passes, then the it's sold forever, and it's not subject to the Shemitah law. It's not part of the ancestral homeland, and therefore he owns it forever. You want to buy it back, you have to negotiate with a new owner. And the verse continues and says, well, what if someone's even so poor and things are really going bad for him? And again, this is a not, this is the same person who rejected the Shemitah laws. He already sold his movable property, his, real, his, his personal property. He sold his real property. Things are really bad for him. And here's a mitzvah, the hechazaktabo. You have to uphold him. It's a mitzvah on the Jewish people, on his brethren, to help him support him and not wait for him to... Um, to, to, to hold him up and not wait for him to totally collapse. The Rashi here tells us uh, that, very important Rashi here, you have to support him and uphold him, don't allow him to fall and falter and go bankrupt, and then it will be very difficult to bring him back up on his feet. He gives an example. He says, imagine you have a donkey that's holding a, a, a burden, a load, on its back. If the donkey is still standing, you can kind of help support him and take off some of the load. But once the donkey collapsed under the load, then you need like five people to hold him up, to bring him back to his feet. And once someone is in total financial mess, then it's a lot more work to get him back on his feet. But if they're just struggling... Only a little, a little infusion of capital, maybe, uh, would be enough to bring him back, uh, to just bring him back to uh, stability. And that's why we're encouraged not to wait until someone is in total desperate, uh, desperate situation, but to help him so that he can be be with you. So we're encouraged to help help our brethren who need help. However, verse tw- verse thirty six tells us we cannot take. Interest, uh, or um, we can't lend it with interest, and be fearful of God. Again, another example why we should be fearful for God. For God, interest makes a lot of sense. I'm actually providing a benefit. There's a value in someone having access to the capital. Yet I'm told don't take interest, and the reason why is because I would think perhaps that well, look at him. He obviously wants to pay the interest. He signed up for this. And I'm benefiting from him. Why should I have my money caught up in someone else's, uh, someone else's business? With that, I'm assuming risk. I should, I should get paid for it. And that's a good argument. But when your brother needs help, you don't charge him interest. And therefore, you say, be fearful of God. Because you're, you, there's a good argument that you could be made. But God tells you, no, give it to him, for, give it to him interest-free. This instruction ends... I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of, out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be for you a God. An amazing Rashi here. I am God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Well, God took us out of the land of Egypt, right? And God said, this is a Jew, this is an Egyptian. God knows exactly, knows exactly who's who. If God knows exactly who's who, God also knows exactly who lends with interest and who lends without interest. And don't think you can evade God by 
saying, well, an interest, and I'll do it kind of under the table, I'll do it surreptitiously, no one will know, I'll be fine. Remember, God took you out of the land of Egypt, and therefore he has the means to know exactly what's happening behind closed doors. Additionally, Rashi tells us, I took you out of the land of Egypt, and I took you on condition. And the condition is that you observe the mitzvahs. And therefore, you might say, oh, these mitzvahs, they're so difficult, and they're so hard, and they're so constricting. But you have to remember is that that was the deal. God took us out of the land of Egypt with the express intent to be our God and for us to be subject to his laws. And therefore, even though the, the, even though the mitzvahs may be difficult, that was the deal. And if we, I mean, essentially what it's intimating is, is that if, if we reject our side of the deal, God will reject his side of the deal. So you look at the end of the parsha; it talks about a Jew being a slave to an Anjou, which is the lowest a Jew could fall. He's not, he's not even a slave to another Jew, he's a slave to an Anjou. And it makes a lot of sense here. What We were originally slaves to an Anjou, to an Anjou in, in Egypt. God took us out. On condition that we observe his laws. If we reject his laws, okay, God says, okay, you don't want your part of the deal? I'm not going to keep my part of the deal. And you'll end up eventually being fo- to fall back to be a slave for a Jew as if you were back in Egypt uh, of yore. And there's another amazing Rashi here. Just a powerful lessons here being brought in one after another. If you look at the verse, the verse merges the idea of going to Israel with the idea of God being our God. Rashi tells us, when someone lives in Israel, I'm his God. However, someone lives outside of Israel, it's as if they don't believe in God. Which, of course, is surprising, because why can't you live outside of Israel and believe in God? So I think the idea is like this. I think this really brings into context this whole mitzvah. There are consequences of being God's nation. We're the chosen people, and there are some benefits that we get as a result. For example, we have the promise of eternality. We'll be around forever. We'll be able to pray and have God listen to us. We'll have a temple. We'll have mitzvahs. We'll have Torah. We'll have meaning. We'll have destiny. A lot of good things. But there are consequences. If we're accepting God, that comes with its responsibilities. We have to start behaving in that way. We have to live in a way of faith. We're total reliance on God. When God says, take a year off, you take a year off. What am I going to feed my family? It's not, that's not, you, you, you accepted God. You're the chosen nation. It has, there's ways that you have to live as a result. And this is manifest more than any other place in, in, in Egypt. In in land of Israel, in land of Israel is where we are living, as if we're subject to God, and therefore, that is the land upon which it could be declared, this is where the Jewish people are living. We got all these laws, land without interest. We have to uh, give back the land that we bought rightfully by Yovel. Uh, we have to free the slaves on Yovel. We bought personal property. We have to return it if they want to buy it back. Stop working every seven years. All these laws, why they're only they only make sense because we have faith. And God tells us to do it, and we're observing his laws. But that is the exact parallel to us having all the boons and all the benefits of being God's people. It comes together. And the whole book of Leviticus, I would argue, 
is about us living and us observing as being God's people. We have his closeness, and therefore, at the end we're told, by the way, there are some responsibilities that come alongside with it that may seem difficult on balance, uh, but in truth, when looked in the... when looked in uh, the prism of the whole picture, it makes a lot of sense. The verse continues, what happens if you have a Jewish slave? Why would someone be a Jewish slave? Again, because they don't observe the laws. They'll end up being a Jewish slave. They don't follow. They have to sell the property and, and eventually have to sell themselves. Don't treat him like a slave. Don't degrade him. You should treat him like he's a laborer. Like he's a He's he's a hired helper, but he's not he's not your property. Because you know why he's really God's property. And it first tells us in verse forty two, he's God's slave. And if he's God's slave, he can't be your slave. And therefore, he could work for you, and you have some rights, but you don't own him. Moreover, verse forty one tells us that when he leaves at the shemitah year, his children leave with him. Well, what, if he's a slave, what does his children do with anything? Why are they relevant to this discussion? And the answer is because when you buy a slave, you actually are responsible for the slave and for his family. Thomas says if you have only one blanket or one pillow, he has to get it. Um, and you have, to, you have to care for his family. So much so that Talmud encapsulates the responsibility of a slave owner is that whoever buys a slave buys a master. Because now you have you have you have to be obedient to him more than he has to be be obedient to you. Uh, now let's contrast this with um, the a non-Jewish slave. So a non-Jewish slave, you actually do own the slave. He's not a slave to God, therefore he could be your slave. And they do not go out uh, on Shemitah and Yovo, and modern ears, this doesn't sound very palatable, uh, but there's no mitzvah. It's not the Torah is telling you you should get slaves. It's not a mitzvah in the Torah. The Torah is legislating slavery. It's not encouraging slavery. Slavery was the way of the land. That's a fact. And therefore the Torah could say, well, how do you behave within that framework? Uh, there's no mitzvah. It doesn't say a mitzvah anywhere to own slaves. It says, well, the Torah is legislating slavery, not mandating it. Uh, and even when you have a non-Jewish slave, uh, it's clear from the sources that uh, you you didn't treat them the way they were treated uh, in by non-Jewish owners. So if you hit your slave, for example, and you kill them, you would actually be executed. Um, they're not your property per se, like like an animal. Um, if you hit your slave and you break one of his bones, they go free. So while they doesn't, the slave doesn't have the same protection that a Jewish slave has, because a Jewish slave, you don't even own him. He owns you more than you own him. He's a slave of God, and therefore you can't be your slave. Even if you have a non-Jewish slave, when slavery was practiced in the, in the greater world, and how it's legislated the Torah, uh, they still had a lot of rights and protections under Torah law. You hit him, you kill him, you yourself can be executed as a murderer. Pretty remarkable. Now, the final, the final degradation of a Jew who rejects the laws of Shemitah is found in verse 47, is when he has to be sold to a non-Jew. 
Jews in the land of Israel. Uh, a Jew who formerly was a farmer who rejected the laws of Shemitah, things got so bad and he refused to cease working on Shemitah, uh, that the verse indicates that he will indeed fall to the lowest depths of actually being sold to a non-Jew, and then the Jews and his brethren are encouraged to try to redeem him and buy him back, yet they're told that even though this is a, a non-Jew living in, under Jewish law in the Jewish jurisdiction. You can't cheat the non-Jew. So the non-Jew purchases a slave who is the Jew, and we want to redeem him, buy him back. We can't cheat the non-Jew. Whatever he paid, he has to uh, be paid back fairly. Is the price that he paid uh, for this slave? If unfortunately he's not bought out, then he goes free on Yovel like all the other Jewish slaves. And the, and the parsha, the first parsha ends where there's mitzvos given to the Jewish slave owned by a non-Jew. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. You think about the depths that someone could fall down to, this is, the, this is the lowest it is, right? You're in Israel and you're not even owned, you're a slave, you're not even owned by a Jew, you're owned by a non-Jew. And the verse tells that don't make idols and don't bow down to them. I am God. Which means that the Jewish slave, he's now in a very non-Jewish environment. Owned by a non-Jewish slave owner who probably is an idolater. And therefore, he's told, don't start learning the, learning the ways of your new master and starting to emulate them. You still have to try to be a Jew even under such terrible conditions. Uh, in the early part of the, ninth, the 20th century, I mean, it might have been late part of the 19th century, the Chafetz Chaim, who was one of the leaders of the Jewish people, he wrote a book. The book is a handbook for Jewish soldiers in the Tsar's army. We know sometimes Jews, uh, where there was a quota given for Jewish, for Jewish communities of how many soldiers they had to each provide for the Tsar's army. And then what that essentially meant was a, a death to their Judaism. Because in uh, living on, under those conditions, how could you be an observant Jew uh, when you're not allowed to by the laws of the army? So you think of those Jews, we have to give up on them, right? There's no hope for them. Yet the Chav Time wrote a book saying how to live as a Jew even under those conditions. Like, uh, what do you do on Shabbos? You know, how, how do you minimize your desecration on Shabbos in a way that is congruent with halacha under those conditions. This is a similar thing. We see the Jews really fall into the deepest depths of despair, and they're still we're still encouraging him to say, try not to emulate the ways of your new master and your new environment. Don't do idolatry. And lastly, observe Shabbos and be fearful of my temple, which is a way of saying that even someone who is surrounded by non-Jews in a non-Jewish environment, he is still subject to all the laws of Shabbos, etc. Thus concludes the first parsha. Now we go into the next parsha, Bichu Kosai, which means in my laws. And this parsha, the bulk of the parsha, is God's predictions, God's promises. What happens when Jews observe the Torah and what happens when they reject the Torah? Uh, the verse starts, if in my 
decrees you shall go, and my mitzvot you shall guard and perform them. I will give you your rain in the correct time. The land will bear its its produce and the trees as well. You'll have bounty and plenty. You'll eat your bread to satiation. You'll be securely in the land. You'll have peace. You won't be fearful. There won't be wild animals coming. There won't be any sword coming in the land. If you have enemies, you'll be able to quickly uh, defeat them. You'll be able to defeat them even though you're smaller in number. And I will give you my attention. I will increase you. I will establish my commitment to you. You'll eat old produce. You'll have such bounty about to eat old produce. I will have my sanctuary, my temple amongst you. I won't reject you. Really, this is like amazing. Like everything will be wonderful if we observe the Torah. Essentially, we could say this is a Jewish perspective on history. And it's, uh, we look at history as being uh, God as God being involved in history and God manipulating history. And here, this is an if-then statement. If the Jews observe the Torah, things will be great. They won't be kicked out of the land. They'll have God amongst them. They'll have prosperity and peace and security. However, in verse 14, it will tell us what happens if they do not listen to God and they reject it and really bad things will happen. And we see, looking back at history, we know this is given to the Jewish people before they got into the land of Israel. But now we know the history indeed does line up with this prediction that when the Jews were observant of Torah, good things happened to them. And unfortunately, when they rejected Torah, the terrible curses that are, that are told in this parsha indeed happened. There's a very famous Rashi here, the very first Rashi in the, in, in the parsha. The verse says, if you follow my decrees and observe my commandments. So, once you say observe my commandments, doesn't that seem to cover everything? Why is it adding if you follow my decrees? What's what's this decrees to follow outside of the mitzvos in general? So Rashi says, similar to that, Rashi says that you will toil in Torah. If you study Torah, not just study Torah superficially, study Torah with depth and toil over it, that's what it's referring to. And indeed, this seems to be like the crown jewel of Jewish activity. It's studying of Torah in a way that someone has to really work hard to think about what he's talking about. So, for example, the Talmud elsewhere says that there's three crowns. There's three spiritual crowns. There's the crown of the kahuna, the Kohen, which was given to Aaron and his descendants. There's the crown of the monarchy, which was given to King David and his descendants. And there's a third crown, the crown of Torah. And the crown of Torah is there sitting, waiting for someone to come take. Whoever wants to come takes it. How do you take it? With toiling over Torah. Why is there such a premium placed upon toiling in Torah, not just studying Torah, to- studying Torah in a way that you actually have to grind your brain, to ruminate over Torah. And the answer is that we could study Torah from 9.30 to 11, or 9.30 to 11.15, and then we go on to the rest of our lives. 
the real objective of Torah study is that it occupies your mind when there's nothing else there. Kind of like Facebook. Like no one has in their calendar, I'm going to go check Facebook at this time. It's the kind of thing people do when there's nothing else to do. It, 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 it like fills up all the white space in someone's life. The objective of Torah is to fill up all the white space. That it's ricocheting in your skull when nothing else is there. That's that's the objective. It, it takes over your life. It it supplants the Eitzarah who uh, makes a living off all that white space and Torah now takes its, its place. And that's only accomplished with toiling of Torah. And you'll notice yes, 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 yes. Keeps the weeds out of the garden. Great. You'll notice the Torah, the sequencing is important. The verse doesn't start off saying you observe the mitzvahs and then you toil in Torah. The verse begins in the opposite. If you toil in Torah and you observe the mitzvahs because toil in Torah is the most precious thing to Hashem is when someone toils in Torah. Now, what's the reward for this? The reward is rain. In its correct time, you'll have produce and bounty and plenty and security and peace. Wouldn't it be more exciting to say you'll have gold and silver and jewels and diamonds? Wouldn't that be a better, more enticing? It'll rain in the correct time. Wouldn't it be more exciting if you were promised not just, eh, it'll rain, you'll have a decent living. So you'll be really rich, be wealthy, you'll conquer. Here it says, it's saying you'll have the basics. And the answer is, because the Torah is not promising what the reward for Torah study is. That's Olam above. What it's telling us, what's the consequences of Torah study? If someone makes it their business to deal with Torah, everything else will be okay. Everything else will be taken care of so that you're able to study Torah. You won't have any earthly problems. Not that things on this land will be your reward, your rewards in Olam But things over here will condition themselves, will arrange themselves so that you will be able to focus on your real goal. For example, if I asked you 200 years ago, 500 years ago, describe what you think Olam is. What someone would say, probably, especially in the winter and the summer times. In Olam in Gan Eden, I'll tell you what it's like. You're about to push a button, and the room gets cold. Push another button, the room gets hot. If you're thirsty, you just push a button. And you have something to drink. You don't need to go all the way to the well and slap and all that. No, you just push a button. And if you want something to be cold, you put it in a box and close the box and it gets cold. You want something to be cooked, you don't need to make a whole fire. You just put it in another box. If you want to do laundry, you don't need to go down to the river and wash it and scrub. But you just put it in a third box. It comes out all wet. You put another box and it comes out dry. It's like this This is the dream. It's just a bunch of boxes that takes care of all your needs. A bunch of buttons. Your dishes are dirty. You put them in a you put them in a box, and you push a button, and it's clean. Sure. You don't want to go up steps. You just go in another box, <laughs> and it takes you upstairs. Or 
you go into stairs, but they move themselves. That's what Olam Abba. That, that's how someone would describe Olam Abba. Everything that we've described, no one gets excited with that because that's just, that's life that we live today. If I promised you that, you say, I really live in that world. It's like, what would entice me? I don't know if I could go live on Mars. You know, that would be, oh, that would be great. Or I don't know what would entice people today. But the, but what this demonstrates is is that when we look at this world and this what this world has to offer, and we get the most excited about it, th- those things are all relative to the situation. They have relative appeal, and therefore, once you have them, they're no longer exciting. That's endemic to uh, everything about this world. Everything about this world is it's really exciting once you when you don't have when you have it, you're like meh. That was kind of meh. Olaba is not like that. And therefore, the reward Olaba is reserved for Olaba. But when someone does study the Torah and observe the mitzvahs, the Torah pledges, you at least won't have to deal with the problems of this world. The conditions will be there to be able to learn and study Torah and observe the mitzvahs. In comfort, all the problems will be cleared away. Um, the verse goes into tremendous and agonizing detail. What happens if someone does not listen and observe, uh, not listen to God, doesn't observe the mitzvos? You will reject the Torah, reject the mitzvos. What's going to be with you? So you? God says, you reject me, I'll reject you. And it gives a very horrifying list of bad things that will happen to people and to a nation who rejects God. So it begins, you'll be panicked. You'll have these boils all over your skin. Uh, you're going to plant the fields, and it's not going to grow. And when it does grow, you're just going to give food for your enemies because they're going to seed your city. And all the plants that you worked so hard and toiled on are just going to feed your enemies. You're going to run away and flee, and nothing's going to be pursuing you. And if you persist and you don't listen, and this is, uh, I encourage everyone to read this if they can, because it does get progressively worse. When they read this section of the Torah, uh, they actually read it very quickly, very quietly, because this is not something that's fun to ruminate over. We don't like to think about this, uh, because, and especially us, given our history, we know that this actually happened. It's important for us to, 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 to look at it and know it, even though it's kind of depressing. Um, and it's just, Pick any verse. I will bring upon you a sword, avenging the vengeance of a covenant. You will be gathered into your cities. I will send a pestilence upon, among you. You will be delivered in the hand of enemies, of your enemies. And it gets really bad. Uh, it talks about um, things got so bad and such suffering. Uh, it talks about parents who have succumbed to actually consuming the flesh of their own children. Really terrible things. And we know that history uh, has demonstrated, for example, we know that the Talmud goes through various points in history where, where all these things actually happened. Like in the siege of Jerusalem. There was a four-year siege of Jerusalem, there's no food. And people, unfortunately, resorted to cannibalism. Uh, just really, really terrible things. And... You read the verse here, the verse tells us that we'll actually be expelled from the land. I will unsheathe the sword after you, your land will be desolate, and your cities will be a ruin. And it goes back to Shemitah. It says, you'll be kicked out of the land, and finally, the land will have its sabbatical. 
you, when you were in the land and you had the prosperity, you refused to observe the laws, I guarantee that the laws will be fulfilled. They won't be fulfilled because of you, they'll be fulfilled despite of you. Because you'll be all kicked out of the land and sent packing, and the land will now be uh, will be empty and desolate, and will have its sabbatical. The land will get its sabbatical. And now, the verse continues for about 30 to 40 verses uh, of that. I encourage everyone to read it. I don't want to read it here because it's kind of depressing. Uh, this is not. This is one of the two times in the Torah where it does present it in very clear-cut terms. If you observe the Torah, good things will happen to you. If you reject the Torah, bad things will happen to you. And indeed, in Jewish history, this has been manifest over and over and over and over again. No one could say that they weren't warned. Like the, this is here. It's been the Torah, every edition of Torah ever. Now, the part of the section ends with a very positive spin. Uh, God says, I will remember my pledge to Jacob, to Isaac, and to Abraham. I'll remember the land, and I once again uh, will will reinvigorate the nation. And despite they'll be scattered, I won't abandon them. I won't reject them. I won't totally obliterate them. This is one of the, one of the promises of the Torah. The Jewish people will never be destroyed, no matter how bad it gets. Will never will never be destroyed, and you know what? Uh, over history, it's it's one of the uh, most unlikely things um, in the context of, of history for a nation to be scattered uh, and not destroyed. It never happened to any other nation besides for us. We'll be in a nation of foreigners. We, God, will not abhor us to the degree that He'll destroy us, because there's a pledge from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and again reaffirmed at the Exodus. That Hashem will be our God. So therefore, uh, the consequences of that is that we get treated very harshly when we when we reject his mitzvos, but we never are destroyed entirely. Now, it's an interesting peculiarity that Rashi points out. Uh, verse 42, it says that Hashem will remember the pledge to Jacob. Hashem will remember the pledge to Abraham. But it doesn't say Hashem will remember. This is the word remember by Isaac. Why does it not say remembrance by Isaac? So Rashi says, of course from Talmud, that Isaac, that forgot to remember. Of course, God doesn't forget anything, but it means that God is accessing something that's not present before him. That's what it means to remember when, um, when in, in the context of God. The act, the action, and the commitment, and the martyrdom of Isaac is always before God. That's what Rashi says. And I think the, the idea here is that there are certain mitzvot and certain personalities uh, that are about self-sacrifice. Like Isaac. Isaac gave up his life for God. And therefore, something like that, it has eternal merits that are always present before God. God doesn't even need to quote-unquote remember it. And I think for us, there are opportunities that every person that have, will have in their life to have a, a modicum of self-sacrifice. It doesn't mean to give up your life per se. It means to commit um, something very great to God and that guarantees, almost, uh, so to speak, um, 
immortality of that mitzvah. For example, the Talmud says, if someone is shamed publicly and they bite their tongue and don't fire back, that's an example of self-sacrifice. Because when someone gets shamed publicly, their face whitens and that's akin to them being killed. And if they're being killed by someone else and they don't respond, they don't fire back, that's an example of self-sacrifice. You don't die from that. But spiritually, it's as if you gave up your life for God. And here we see that Isaac, there's some merit to Isaac's character and his behavior is that uh, that he, his mitzvahs and his commitment is always right before God. And that's, I think, an example of, of a self-sacrifice. When someone has a certain degree of, of giving up of themselves before God and that creates a, a, an eternal legacy. The parsha and indeed the book ends ends with um, detailed laws of when someone makes a pledge to the temple. Someone makes a pledge to the temple, uh, and sometimes the, the way they used to do this is uh, they would say, "I want to give the value of a person to the temple. I'll make a donation. Well, how much I want to do- donate? Uh, however much this person's worth. Well, how much are people worth?" So it gives us details of, of what what this means. If someone wants. Someone wants to donate an animal, and then they say, you know what, I kind of like this Betsy the cow. I don't want to give it away. I want to buy it back. He has to pay a premium above that. Similar thing with a house. And finally, at the end, we're told about uh, tithes. Tithes are for Hashem. A person can redeem it. You want to redeem a tithe, you have to add a premium, a fifth upon it. And uh, every tenth animal is given for Hashem. And a verse ends. These are the commandments given to Moshe uh, and to the ch- children of Israel at Mount Sinai, Chazak, Chazak, Benit Chazak. We have concluded and completed, uh, thanks to God, the book of Leviticus. God willing, next week, we're going to tackle the book of Numbers. We're 60% of the way home. Uh, we have to start planning how the celebration that uh, we're going to do it. A massive, massive, mega celebration when we finish the whole uh, Torah. Looking forward to that.